1 Thessalonians 2, 9-12 For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good evening. Welcome to Grace Downtown. We are so glad that you have chosen to worship with us tonight. We are continuing in our series in the book of First Thessalonians. Uh, at this time, our first and second grade students are going to go down to their class. Um, and as they do, I want to talk to us as a church about the first and second grade class. Uh, the first and second grade class worships with us each uh, week on Sunday night. That's for a number of reasons. Uh, one, we think it's great to have them worship with the family of God and see what that's like. And so we love having them in here. Um, We ask our kids to listen to the words and pick out some things from the song or different parts of the music that they like. Um, So it's a great time for them to worship with the family of God. Also, it's great to worship as a family. I love having my kids in here to sing the songs. Uh, We would love to have the kids in here for the entire service, but some of them get a little uh, squiggly and want to go to class. So we have class for first and second grade, but we love having them in here uh, for the music time. So um, that's why we have the first and second grade here. We just wanted to kind of walk us through that as a church, why that takes place. Then they head down. um, They hear a Bible story focused on the gospel. They spend some time uh, playing games that revolve around memory verse. And it's a great time for them to fellowship with their friends and learn from uh, the church. So that's why our first and second grade class is up here with us. We're continuing this series in the book of First Thessalonians. And tonight we're having a, a special application of what we've been reading in First Thessalonians. Um, in First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, uh, you see Paul, who is writing this letter to the church in Thessalonica, which is in uh, Macedonia about 2,000 years ago. He's writing this letter to this church, and he's teaching them how to be good news people. And that's the theme of our series. When we hear the word good news, or we hear the word gospel, we usually think about Jesus dying for our sins. And of course, we just sang songs about that. That's the most important thing in history. It's the most important thing in our lives. It's how we're saved. But what Paul is primarily writing about in Thessalonians is how to be good news gospel people. How the good news can permeate our lives and change everything about us, not just what we believe or not just what we do on our Sundays or not just where we go when we die, but it really should permeate every part of us. So I say this is a special application here tonight because I'm going to spend just a few minutes recapping what Steve talked about last week, in case you missed it. And I'm really going to focus in on applying what Steve talked about last week. And then we're actually going to talk about what it looks like at Grace Community Church to do what these verses are saying. And then we're going to end the service a little bit early, and we're going to eat cookies. Um, 
it's connected, and I'll tell you how. Um, not that cookies are ever a bad thing, but we are going to have cookies after the service, and we are going to have our pastors up here, and we would love to meet you. So if we haven't had a chance to meet you, please come and introduce yourself uh, to us because we want to make sure that we know you, and that'll be a way of actually applying the scripture that we're taking a look at. And hopefully by the end of the next few minutes, you'll know what I mean by that. So if you aren't there already, please open with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. As I said, tonight will just be a recap of what the scripture says, a little bit of application from what Steve talked about last week, and then uh, really talking about what do we do to make this true at Grace Community Church? How do we obey this individually, but then also collectively as a gospel community? How do we live this out? As you turn there to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, let me pray for us. God, thank you for this opportunity to open your word. God, we um, confess that we need to hear from you. We need to hear from you today. We need to hear from you before this week starts. Uh, We need a word from our Heavenly Father. Thank you, Father, that you have spoken to us. Thank you that you speak through your word, through your spirit, through your people. And we pray that you would do just that here tonight. Speak through this time. Continue to speak through one another. God, we pray that we would hear your spirit. We pray that we would be reminded of the good news. We pray that we would give glory to the Father as we look to be your good news people. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, verses 1 through 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the first couple of three verses that Steve talked about last week will be up here on the screen. You can also turn there with me. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict— For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. So Paul is talking about the kind of message that he and the other apostles brought to the church in Thessalonica. And the first thing he says about it is that it was true. The message he brought to them was true. In verse 2, he says, we had boldness in our God. They had boldness because the message that they were proclaiming was one that was true true. Now it's true in a couple of different ways. It's true because it's factually true that Jesus died, an innocent man put to death, and three days later he rose from the grave just as he said that he would, and then he ascended to be with the Father. And he healed people, he spoke about the kingdom, he did a lot of other things, but the things that he said actually came to pass. So the message that they give is not one they made up, It's not a dream that they had or something that they cooked up somewhere in an upper room. The message that they gave was one that was factual. It was also authentic. It was authentic. The facts were straight. The facts all lined up. But they brought an authentic message of what they had actually experienced. What they had experienced either as first generation or second generation's apostles of Christ. Either they had walked around and seen Jesus do these things for themselves, or they had been discipled by someone who did. So their message was factual. It was authentic. Jesus really rose from the dead. And then Paul, later in 1 Thessalonians 4, will take a look at um, Paul talking about the resurrection, that there will be a future resurrection someday, 
because there was the resurrection of Jesus. So the message that they brought is factual, it's authentic, that Jesus really rose from the dead and there's a promise of resurrection life for you and for me as well. So the message they brought was true. Moving on in verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul is saying something here about how they brought the message. So their message was true. It was authenticated. It was truly something that had happened in history. But then the way they brought it was from a place of sincerity. Sincerity. They they came from a sincere place. They were not trying to peddle the word of God for their own profit. They were not doing it for their own gain. They brought a sincere message. They meant what they said. And their message could be trusted because they trusted in the message and work of Jesus to do the work. They trusted in Jesus to do the work. They trusted that what Jesus did was true and they trusted his spirit now to do the work. They didn't feel the need to put on a show. They didn't feel the need to sensationalize the message of the gospel. They came and told it like it was and they trusted it to be powerful Often we have this temptation to make the gospel or Christianity or following Jesus about us. When we make following Jesus about us, we kind of can fall off the fence one of two ways. Either we can think it's all up to us to make disciples and to be a good follower of Jesus, or we can think it's all about us. We can think it's all up to us, or we can think it's all about us. And either way is not true, and it's wrong-headed. It doesn't get us anywhere thinking that we have to do it all, or that it's all about us. Paul and the other apostles did not act in this way. They came from a place of sincerity. In verse 6, he says, We did not seek glory from people. They sought glory from God. When we live in that way, from a place of sincerity— When we live in that way where we are trusting the Spirit of God and the message of Jesus, when we live in that place, we rest on a bed of peace. We love Jesus and we follow him and we practice the spiritual disciplines and we share the good news, not out of duty or out of a checklist or out of shame, but we do it from a place of peace. Paul and the other apostles, when we read the book of Acts, they're going through some very difficult things. They're going through very difficult times, even physical, logistical issues, trying to get the message to all these different places. They're shipwrecked, they're imprisoned, they're beaten. They're going through hard times, but they're acting from a place of trust. They're acting from a place of sincerity. Because the message of Jesus is good news. And before it's good news for anyone else, it's good news for us. And we can trust in the good news of the gospel and we can minister from a place of sincerity. We can share the good news with our world from a place of sincerity. 
Not perfection, sincerity. That's the beauty of it. We don't share the good news from a place of perfection. We don't share the good news in a way that says, be good like me. That's not the good news. Be good like me. That's not good news. But we can give the message of good news, of great joy that's for all people from a place of sincerity because it's not about us. We can share our very lives with people. We can be honest about who we are. We can invite them into our chaotic lives and our chaotic homes and our chaotic discipleship and our chaotic community group. And we can say, Jesus loves you. We can minister from a place of sincerity. And that brings great peace and joy. We can just share the good news of what Christ has done without having to put on airs and and communicate something that we're not. There's great freedom and joy in that. Continuing on in verse 7. Verse 7, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Here, Paul is talking about how they communicated it, physically, logistically, how they communicated the good news of the gospel. They communicated it in word and in deed. They didn't just proclaim it with their lips and then live a different way. They didn't just stand on a stage and preach at people and then not really know them. They did it from a place where they offered their very lives to others. See, the message of the gospel is true, but it's not good news until we live it out. We need to declare it, but we also need to demonstrate it. The gospel has to be embodied. That's what Steve brought up last week. The gospel has to be embodied. It can't just be communicated verbally. It can't be just understood cognitively. It's got to be embodied and embraced at a relational level. In my life, I've heard a lot of statistics and things and read articles and books about Uh, criminal justice reform, and I'd heard statistics that kind of got me fired up or would make me think, hey, maybe we need to rethink this. Maybe we should be spending more money on education than incarceration, you know, things like that. Statistics that kind of made me think about, oh, maybe I need to think about this or do more research about this. But it was something that stayed at a cognitive level, level until I had the opportunity to meet and minister to a returning citizen, someone that spent nine years in jail. And hearing this individual talk about the need for criminal justice reform and hear what his experience was like and just get to know him, I started taking on the ideas of criminal justice reform and what's going on in our prison system at a more personal level. Now it's no longer a statistic in my head. It's something that's in my heart. I now can embody it because someone else embodied it to me. There's nothing like sitting in the same room and talking to someone about their experience. That was better than any statistic or book that I could read. The message of criminal justice reform was embodied to me, and now I can embody that and be passionate about it to others. 
That's the difference between just hearing words and seeing the gospel embodied. Here's the thing. Lectures and statistics and words change minds, but examples change lives. When the gospel is embodied, it doesn't just change the mind. It changes the heart. It changes lives. Paul is saying that we embodied the gospel to you. In verse 8, he says, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. When he says our own lives, what he means when he speaks in the Greek, he's saying his soul, the very epicenter of who he is. He's saying we were willing to give all of ourselves to you. We were willing to embody the gospel at a very real, physical, relational level. We weren't just communicating cognitive truth to you, but we embodied it with our very selves, who we are. They embodied it by taking a weight and a burden off those they ministered to. Look in verse 6. In verse 6, Paul says, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles. When he says we could have made demands, in the Greek, what he's saying here is we had the weight of leadership upon us, meaning that they were apostles of Jesus. They were commissioned by the Spirit himself to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and they could have made demands because of their position. They could have made demands based on their apostleship. But he says they did not. And in fact, if we go down to verse 9 in chapter 2, he says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we may not be a burden to any of you. Paul is saying we took the burden of leadership to remove burdens from you. We used our status, we used our position, and we used it to serve you. That's what gospel-led leadership and service looks like. Removing the burdens from others. They embodied the gospel. They embodied the gospel. They listened to Jesus when Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. They exuded that in the way that they led others. So what does it look like here at Grace Community Church when we embody the gospel at a corporate level? What does it look like when we embody the gospel at a corporate level? It looks like ministering from a place of truth, sincerity, and gospel community. So first, in gospel community, we believe the gospel— It's important what we believe. The gospel is what brings us together. There's a lot of opportunities for social clubs. There's student orgs. There's social groups. There's like-minded people that all like the same sports team. But it's not the same as the gospel bringing us together. The gospel should bring us together in a way where it may be the one thing that you have in common with other people in this room is the gospel The church should look like the most diverse group of people in the community because it's the gospel that's bringing them together. Not their preferences, not the kind of music they like or the kind of church they're into, but the gospel bringing them together. 
That's what gospel community looks like. So the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done for sinners is what brings us together in the first place. So I want to ask you tonight, do you believe the gospel? If you, if you don't or you've got questions, we're so glad you're here and we want you to keep coming. Come here, come to community group, ask your questions, ask a friend, ask one of the pastors, ask someone with a green lanyard on. We would love to answer your questions. We're so glad that you're here. But do you believe the gospel? You personally, do you really believe the gospel? You may have given mental assent to the gospel, but do you really believe it has the power to change your life? Do you really believe that the gospel is good news for your sin? Do you really believe that the gospel that is good news can change your addictive behavior and your sin patterns that you just can't get rid of on your own? Do you really believe that the good news is good news of great joy for all people and you're one of those people? The gospel is what brings us together. And the gospel is our only way forward if we hope to overcome life's complexities. In our society, we've got some complexities to work through. We've got political complexities. We have racial reconciliation complexities, social justice complexities. We're a non-denominational, unaffiliated church that comes with complexities. The mental health crisis that we're facing in our country comes with complexities. Having a better marriage than our world or than our folks comes with complexities. And only the gospel is up to the challenge. Only the gospel can overcome these things and jump into the complexities that we find ourselves in. So first, we must believe that the gospel is good news. Next, we need to display sincerity to be a gospel community. We need to display a sincerity, meaning a true love for one another, that goes outside of just the fact that we meet here in the same building once a week or a couple times a week for a community group, but really a life of sincerity. There's many professions like this, but I'll just name a few. Professions like lawyers and surgeons and professional counselors, they actually, it helps their job if they put up some boundaries and some walls in between their clients and patients and their real life. Like your brain surgeon cares about you enough that he wants to heal you, but you're not going out for coffee afterwards, right? Probably the same thing with your lawyer, a professional therapist. They're there to serve you and help you, and they care about you enough to do their job, but you're not going to be on a first-name basis with them moving forward. You're not going to be hanging out for barbecues. There's a line of differentiation there. Far too often that line is there for us as church people too. And far too often that's been our experience in churches. That there's professional guys up here, guys and ladies running the different ministries of the church. But the line kind of ends when I leave the building. It's not what Paul did. It's not what the New Testament church did. And that's not who we want to be as a church. We want to be a group of people that actually knows each other, really knows what's going on in our lives. 
I believe biblically as the elders of this church, we have to set the example for that. Of making sure that the church isn't about just gathering together, doing programs, following some vision, but really knowing one another. We want to do that more and more. I'll talk to you a little bit more about that in just a minute. Verses 7, 8, 11, 12 in this chapter show us that the gospel teaches us not just what to think about and not just what to believe, but how to act. The kind of people that God is calling us to be. Look at verses 11 and 12. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. A few verses earlier, it says that Paul and the other apostles were affectionate and he uses this mother-child relationship. And then it says here that they're like a father exhorting their children. Paul is saying whatever was in front of us, the gospel gave us the ability to act in a way that we needed to act. It changed the way he and the other apostles interacted with the church. And Paul is saying it should change the way the church interacts with one another. That the gospel changes the way we interact. We're good news people in our conversations, in our lives, in our families, in our community groups. Lastly, to be a gospel community, we embody the gospel. The gospel making a difference in our everyday lives. Changing our interactions with one another. Changing our interactions with the world around us. Changing our interactions with people on our teams, in our cohorts, in our training group, in our cube that we work in. Our roommates. It changes the people. The way we interact with the people around us. We embody the gospel. I think, I'll just speak for myself, but I think there's broader Uh, folks that deal with this, a lot of times we think of evangelism or we think of sharing our faith as just these one-hit wonder conversations. That if someone ever asks us about church or God, we need to have an answer to give them. And while that's important, we also need to embody the good news. That means serving our coworkers, serving our classmates, laying down our life for them, embodying the gospel in ways we see Jesus embodying the gospel. We see Jesus serving others. We see Jesus letting unclean people touch him. We see Jesus healing people. We see Jesus meeting with marginalized people when it hurt his own reputation. Jesus is showing us what it looks like to embody the good news in everything that he's doing. There's a model there for us of how to embody the gospel. We want this to change who we are as a church. We don't want this church to just be about advancing the name of Grace Community Church. We don't want this to be about a logo or a program or getting people into this building. We want to embody the gospel. There are practical things that we do at this church because we want to embody the gospel. I'll just name a few of them. Our community groups are primarily led by lay people that are are not paid staff here at Grace Community Church. They're brothers and sisters in Christ that want to follow Jesus and want to help others do the same. So we have multiple community groups led by men and women who love Jesus and want to help others love Jesus. 
We've also chosen to make that our primary discipleship programming in the church because we want people to really share their lives with one another. Other churches do Sunday school, adult Sunday school classes, adult Bible fellowships, lots of different things, and there's benefits to those things. We have some equipping and training classes on Sunday morning at our location in North Liberty, but our primary means of discipling is in community groups because we want people to really know each other. It is such a joy for me as a pastor to meet someone in this church and find out they're already in a community group. That just feels like mission accomplished. Someone knows you before I even get the chance to know you. That's awesome. God is doing a work through community groups because we want to embody the gospel for one another. As staff here at Grace, those of us that are on paid staff, we do not desire to just be professional ministers. We want to be shepherds. We want to be brothers and sisters in Christ that are here to serve and equip the church for acts of service. We, we want to know you and we want you to know us. We want to eat cookies with you after the service. <laughs> we have two full-time pastors here uh, downtown. And one of the reasons is that we want to know you and we want you to know us. So we don't want to base the number of pastors we have based on just the number of people we have or what we're trying to accomplish. We want to do it based on relationships. We want to make sure that you know Steve or I or Brooks or Jeff. We want, we want to make sure that you really know us and we know you. That's an important thing to us. The reason we do meals after the service is because we want to share our lives with one another. You can come in and go to service and then leave right after the service and never meet anyone. And never have an extended conversation with anyone. But you stand in that long line that wraps around the whole sanctuary and wait for food. Or you sit down and you eat with people. You get to know them exponentially faster. And you can really share lives with one another. The good, the bad, the ugly. In each of our kids' classes, we strive to have more teachers than the law requires. There's actually laws about how many adults you need to have with however many kids. We want to have more than the law requires because we want our kids to see the gospel embodied. We don't want to just do childcare. We don't just want a talking head up front teaching kids. We want men and women that love Jesus that embody the gospel to our kids. This is affecting the way we do ministry. It's affecting the way we organize our church. This very principle that Paul is talking about. I sat down the summer that we were planting the downtown church six and a half years ago, and I was also becoming an elder. I was ordained that same summer. And as I did, I read the pastoral letters where Paul is writing to Timothy and telling him what a young pastor looks like. He's writing to Thessalonians and telling them what God's good news people look like. And as I read those passages, these passages, verses 7 and 8 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, leapt off the page at me. And the Spirit of God just said to me, this is what fruitful ministry looks like. Sharing our very lives with one another. I have no idea if you guys are listening right now. I hope you are. But you may be watching a game on your phone. You may be reading the Bible. Occasionally there's a nod or an amen, if Kalina's here in the back. But um, once in a while, I'm like, okay, God is using this, but I don't really know. 
But when I sit down and I have coffee with a couple of you, or I sit across the table and you're asking me how you can grow in your faith, I know that's where God wants me to be. Because it's brothers and sisters embodying the gospel for one another. That's the kind of church that we want to be. I want to ask you, (laughs) I don't know why I'm crying right now. It's one of the songs we sing, I think. Um, I want to ask you right now, this is a happy thing, not a a crying thing. Um, I want to ask you to pray for your elders at Grace Community Church. We're one church in two locations, uh, one in North Liberty, one downtown here. And God is really on the move, and he's doing some great things at an elder level in our church. So many other uh, levels as well, but at the elder level, God is really at work and doing a work in our hearts. He's doing a revival in the hearts of your elders, and we want to serve you better. And we want to do everything that we do as a church to help you believe the gospel and embody the gospel and help our world that desperately needs good news to hear it. So we want to structure ourselves as an elder team and as a staff in a way that serves you better. We want to share our very lives with you. And we will restructure or do whatever it takes so that we can do that. So pray for us. It's not going to be just one meeting that will get us where we need to be. It's going to be so many meetings. It's going to be meetings about meetings and more meetings about meetings. Please pray for us. Please pray for us. We live in a world that is increasingly anxious. Increasingly anxious about the future. We live in a world where people are feeling more disenfranchised and hopeless than I think at any point in my life. But at the same time, we're becoming more and more tribal and angry and mean about things. 100 years ago, the leading cause of death among young moms was childbirth. Now it's suicide. Suicide is now the second leading cause of death for people under the age of 25. The last three years, the life expectancy of Americans has gone down for the first time in decades. And it's largely due to deaths of despair that come from alcoholism, suicide, and reckless living. It's the biggest three-year drop in life expectancy in 105 years in America. Our world is desperately in need of good news. And not just one-hit wonder sermons. We're not just getting people to come into a church building. The good news has to be embodied by each one of us. When the gospel is known, believed, and embodied, it not only changes our lives, it forms a gospel community, and it changes the world. That, thank you, that is the hope. That is the hope our world needs. Nothing is working. That's why it's getting worse. We told a generation of people that they just needed to go to college, and it didn't work. We told a generation of people they just needed more money and to move to the suburbs, and it didn't work. We just told a generation of people that they needed more technology, 
and it made it worse. We're now telling a generation of people to just do what feels good to them and it's not working. We need good news of great joy for all people and we've got to embody it with everything we've got. It's our only hope and it's the world's only hope. I'm going to pray for us and Steve's going to come up and tell you how to get your cookies. And some other things too. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us tonight. We pray that you would continue to speak through your spirit tonight. God, thank you for the privilege of getting to call the brothers and sisters in this church my brothers and sisters. God, bless our interaction with one another. God, be with us as we embody your gospel. Thank you that we can embody the gospel. It's an amazing grace that we even know the good news. God, thank you for speaking. In Jesus' name, amen.